For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Evan Ratliff of The Atavist and Max Linsky of Longform. Hey, you guys. This week on the show, Rachel Monroe, uh, someone we wanted to have on for a long time, um, had a really interesting conversation about freelancing from a small town in Texas, what that entails, um, what kind of stories she gravitates to. She, she's someone, Max and I, we, we've edited this site for a long time. She's one of those people who, anything she writes, I'm pretty interested in. Yeah, there's a handful of people, freelancers, who write for a bunch of different magazines, and they only publish a couple pieces a year. And Rachel's one of those people that, like, when it comes across the transom, Aaron and I are both just like, yep. If you don't, if you don't know her byline, I would start with the Oxford American story she did about this uh, fertilizer fire in West Texas. Um, but everything she's done is excellent. Hey, Evan, I, I just want to tell you, I had a good time at the uh, the party you threw there for your uh, book launch. Thanks, Aaron. And not just because of the free drinks that you were provided? I'll tell you, you had a lot of those free drinks, Max. <laughs> <laughs> Since you mentioned the party, the party was to celebrate a book that we have out, Love and Ruin, that yeah. uh, people can go buy it at, at all, all retailers. It's out it, from Norton. It's, uh, it co- collects a lot of the uh, the best of the, uh, the first few years of The Atavist. And many people who have been on this podcast... Are also featured. In I would portion. I would wager that I, we've had almost all of those people on this podcast. We either we've had half of them, and the other half we're trying to get. I think excellent, excellent. Uh, Except we, for that one person who we were like, no way. Oh yeah, we'll <laughs> never have them on. <laughs> Definitely not, Josh Behrman. <laughs> Aaron, what about sponsors this week? Uh, Mailchimp is our sponsor. Uh, as always, they've supported us from the very beginning. You could support them by when you need to send email from your business, sending it through MailChimp. They've got all the best tools. They make it easy, and we appreciate it. Thank you, MailChimp. I appreciate you, Aaron Lammer. And here's your interview with Rachel Monroe. Welcome, Rachel Monroe. Hi. Hi. Initial disclaimer: You uh, you uh, you pitch in here with the long form website. Uh, yes, but I'm the most delinquent one, I think. I think actually I met you at a taping of the long form podcast in Austin, Texas. Yeah, you're going to out me as a fan. Yes, <laughs> you're the only per- you're the only fan I've ever met. So, <laughs> um, I, we were uh, I was getting ready to interview Lawrence Wright, and yeah. uh, I was sitting at the bar next to you. And you were there like four hours early, too, to, I, du- to double out Oh, you. man. I think you had actually at that point just driven from Marfa. What, how, how long is that drive? That's... From to Austin, eight hours, seven yeah, was... hours. Depends on how fast you go, how many road kills there are. So you live in Marfa, Texas. I do. You, you continue to live in Marfa, Texas. Yes, I How do. many years is this now? It's just about my four-year anniversary. Are you? Um, is there a community of nonfiction writers in Marfa, Texas, or are you the only nonfiction am... writer? I'm not the only. There's a lovely woman named Sterry Butcher who writes for Texas Monthly. Oh, okay. Um, and there are some people who are there kind of part-time, but it's, it's sometimes I feel like I'm on my own. And there's a there's a daily newspaper, and there's some uh, people who work for – or a weekly newspaper, people who work for that. Did you move to Marfa with specific intentions? <laughs> I always tell people – people always ask me why I moved there, and the best answer – is I just say that it was a whim, which is, I guess, true and not true. I was I had been living in Baltimore and was ready for a change and was doing all these long cross-country road trips because I, I was in the enviable situation of I, I was all freelance so I could be wherever, but that also produced a lot of anxiety in me because it could be wherever. Um, and I drove through Marfa. I had actually never been to Texas before. I was visiting friends in Austin. I was trying to figure out where I was going to stay the next night. I had this very East Coast sense of Texas. I had, I had heard of Marfa, but I thought it was like right an hour outside Austin or something. That, that's my impression. My uh, initial attempts to go to Marfa were all um, 
with a, a rental car at South by Southwest. Yeah. I thought I would be able to just extend it for a day or yeah, two day and trip. Go, go see it. Not really. But then I just passed through and, and really kind of liked it a lot unexpectedly um, and ended up, there's some twists and turns, but I ended up deciding to move there. I think that um, the sensibility of a lot of the stories you do, like the small town world mm-hmm. appears in your story ideas. So yeah. one of the most recent stories you published, um, I don't remember the exact title, but it had Manosphere in it, I believe. <laughs> Do you remember the full title? I think it's from Pickup Artist to Pariah. I didn't write the title. So the basic framework of this story is um, a guy is a somewhat successful local coffee entrepreneur and is outed with another guy who works at the coffee shop as being behind a fairly vicious pickup artist blog. Is that how you And describe? podcast. And podcast. <laughs> Check out our other show. <laughs> um, and it's actually less about the pickup artist blog and podcast, but how like a town of the size of Asheville, um, sorry, I failed to note that it was Asheville, North Carolina, deals with something like that. And um, if that happened in New York, it would be like a footnote in, you know, the tiny, they just like get out of town, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, how does a story like that come to you? Well, I, I read about that. That was one of those stories that kind of makes a minor blip when it first when people first found his blog, I think I read about it on Jezebel or yeah. something. And then uh, it just was one of those things I got obsessed with for an afternoon. And um, they linked to his blog and his podcast and all his terrible tweets. Um, and so I just was like kind of spent all afternoon like soaking that stuff up and emailing all my friends and being like, can you believe this? And I'm slowly starting to realize that it's like that's why I like my job because I can get obsessed with something and I'm like, oh wait, I could maybe yeah. like turn this into something. Um, but at a certain point, did you turn a corner and sort of like there's a glimmer in the story when you first, I think, feel empathy for the experience of that guy? Yeah. It's almost like um, the experience of writing about that at feature length rather than in Jezebel mm-hmm. is making a decision to like spend long enough with that person that you kind of get his internal story too. Yeah. I mean, I think that's when I first reached out to him. I wrote him an email and was pretty honest and was like, I just read all of these things that you wrote and they made me feel gross. But I don't know if I mentioned living in a small town, but I, I, that was definitely in my head. Like, I can't imagine everybody knowing the worst thing about you. Um, just your ugliest, the ugliest part of yourself that just being, um, out in the world and then not being able to be anonymous. It was definitely in my head and why it was interesting to me, not just, you know, because you can tear down a person in a blog post. You don't really need that much longer than a blog post to tear somebody down. But yeah, the other part of it was, yeah, what I wanted to explore. What is that process like of sort of putting yourself in the shoes, not of the angry townsperson with the uh, pitchfork, but the person being run out of town? Well, I feel like a lot of that is not necessarily up to me. I mean, it's this funny dance, and I just I end up sending out a lot of emails for potential stories to people, and people either don't respond or, I don't know, Jared, the guy who's at the center of that story, wrote me back, and then he called me, and we talked on the phone for like an hour and a half off the record, and he was like, I don't want to do a story, but he cried, and it, you know, uh. he, it has to do with the other person kind of being willing to open themselves up for me. And then I kind of can't help but right. empathize because um, what, they're what's there. A, what's up with that when someone like, calls you and wants to talk for a night? Is like, this is off the record. I don't want to do a story, yeah. but I'm going to talk to you for 90 minutes. Yeah. Is that person toe-dipping? I don't know. I mean, at this, I just had an experience like this with a story that's in process, so I can't talk about it. But it was like all day. I spent all day with this guy. Um, I think that it is... Yeah, I don't know if they're they're feeling you out, they're thinking about it, they're kind of warming up to the idea mm-hmm. of telling the story, they're seeing how you react. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a certain type of person that like really wants their story to be out in the world, even if they know there might be consequences for them. And so I think it's that period of where they're weighing the pros and cons in their mind. How do you, I mean, how do you act during that period where you have not, you're not officially... Um, in the reporter chair yet, but you're on the line with someone that you want to write about. 
I mean, I think I took notes with Jared, um, not because I would use them or anything, but just because I wanted to remember what was up. I don't know. I mean, I just try to be really honest because I think that's if they are feeling me out, which I think is what they're doing. I think that's the most important time to be yeah. super honest and upfront and like not try to trick somebody because I don't ever want there to be feelings of like bad faith or manipulation. I mean, it's I guess it's always a little some manipul- <laughs> it's always a manipulation, but I want it to be yeah. more honest manipulation, maybe. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I guess I just try to be like super straightforward and like kind also are you auditioning the subject of the story in a situation like that also like like if this guy truly like was i mean i'm not really defending the the main character of this story but if he was a one-dimensional douchebag it wouldn't have been much of a story yeah yeah i guess that's the case i mean i can't think oh i can think of one story where i went and and actually traveled somewhere and spent some time with a person and then was had exactly that feeling this person is sort of a it feels terrible to say, but sort of a one note person or what they're giving me, at least like what they're giving me is kind of like their rant that they just press the start button on and then they rant and then they stop. And so there's not that extra level of connection. And then that story ended up, I ended up just being like, I can't, there's nothing here for me. Do you have like an internal um, deadline yourself where you're saying like, okay, I got 90 minutes for this guy, but if (laughs) if he's not willing to like seal the deal, it's over here. No, I think maybe I'm super patient. I got nowhere else to be. Yeah. I was in a coffee shop in Philadelphia. I remember when he called me. So I just was (laughs) hanging out, texting my friend like, oh my God, Jared called me. (laughs) So when you're working in that kind of a capacity where you're kind of trying to um, bring to life this conflict that rocked a small community how do you try and gauge the temperature of the community like a lot of that story is about how different people were feeling at different times and there's kind of this guy who tries to like intervene and sort of be like a peacemaker but he's also kind of like a weird guy it's a it's a real like um anyone who spent time in a like a small community i think recognizes these different figures in it and how they uh shape the community's view but as an outsider you know i assume you had not spent a lot of time in asheville prior to that Mm-mm. story w- what's the first thing you do when you get into town well i guess for asheville i i had friends who lived there so that helped too just putting the word out to my friends and asking what was up how people were feeling i had friends who were in the small business community so they knew Jared and the coffee shop from that. Yeah. Um, so that that helped. And, and just asking everybody, who else should I talk to? I mean, I do a lot of things like driving around and getting these are probably pretty obvious things, but getting I always get, you know, the local paper and all the little newsletters. And I look at all the flyers that are up, things that aren't necessarily directly related, but yeah. just that seem like they might be just starting out being really kind of omnivorous about what's going on in town and for the for the Asheville story in particular I guess I I realized that there were like various constituents what various groups that I needed to (laughs) um that so there were like the women who were written about there were the protesters who protested and eventually got the coffee shop shut down yeah there were people who were friends or fellow business owners so I just sort of had an idea of like various groups that I wanted to kind of touch base with and I touched base with a lot of people who didn't end up being in the story but just um, yeah it's just being kind of omnivorous and, and asking everybody in the case of that story many women who had slept with this um professional seducer uh, what are these guys called seduction artist yeah um Many of the women who slept with him are sort of like it was so thinly veiled that it was like literally like they were being blogged about, which mm-hmm. I think is maybe the worst thing in the story, the worst thing he did. And I'm curious how you dealt with the differences and how they felt because there was more than one woman involved and you're kind of trying to paint a picture of like what the experience of being on the other end is here, but it's different for the different people. And also how you represented to those women mm. the fact that you were writing a profile of a sort of this man who had done something fairly terrible to them. Yeah, that's uh, that was slightly tricky. We I met with all of them all together, so mm. I didn't interview any of them separately. We went out to a bar, and they all had drinks, and it was kind of like I felt like a girls' night out 
kind of thing. Um, that is which, so weird. It was kind of weird. I mean, they, they had been – it was fitting in a way because it was something that they had been doing. They had been meeting up together. That was kind of how they, they all got over the fact of feeling – really exposed in this way is a lot of them, they mostly didn't know each other, but they formed a Facebook group and and then started hanging out together because they could all kind of share the experience and, and ask each other, you know, what techniques did he use on you? Yeah. Oh, he did that to me too. Um, and, and then they just kind of became friends. So I think it maybe made them feel more safe in a way that for us all to meet together as a group. What do I mean? The dynamics have to be really different in a group like yeah, that than an individual weird. interview. Yeah, it doesn't. Based on the way your face looks, it doesn't seem like your ideal way to conduct interviews. Well, yeah, I think there's sort of a there's maybe a kind of bluster or something, and you can't necessarily ask deep. How did you feel? Questions in the same way. Interesting. But they were they in a way. It also I didn't even have to do very much. They kind of uh, would bounce off of each other in this way that I could kind of sit there and, and almost not become invisible, but um, I didn't, yeah, I really didn't have to do much. It was, that was a funny <laughs> night. Uh, you've, among the, um, in reading through your catalog, um, among the many things that I feel like connects different pieces of writing you've had, I guess I would describe as uh, the question of how bad is this or how evil <laughs> is this? Uh -huh. um, so you've written about a scientist, I believe a psychiatrist, mm -hmm. who has basically been trying to make a scientific inquiry into the relativeness of evil yeah. um, in such a way that sentencing guidelines and the way that juries are instructed can be more scientific. In yeah. um, a lot of your stories... When you come to the end of the story, I feel like you've kind of framed for the reader like an understanding in the same way that a jury might have about the respective morality of um, the person that you've been spending time with. Huh. Did your view of Jared change over the, the course of that reporting? Yeah. I mean, I think from the beginning, from when I talked to him on the phone, I did feel bad for him. I mean, I don't – and I don't know that that – changed so much it was more just that I uh realized or had the sense that it felt to me like he had longer like a longer journey in front of him because he he's on a journey of redemption he recognizes that what he did was wrong but I think there's still a lot that he doesn't understand but you know who am I I, I don't want to I'm just the writer. I what, don't want to be the judge. What is a journey of redemption? How can I go? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's going to like a man's encounter group called Mankind. Oh my god! So it you sounds like a, it sounds like there's like crazy hugging happening. Yeah, about, I like, think those like one hour long hugs kind of thing. Yeah, and like crying about your dad. Yeah. Okay. Good time. So, Good time. You know. Um, where do, where does that interest in um, the relativity of uh, evil come from in you? Because I know, like, I know you a bit personally, and I know that you're very interested in serial killers. You know that I'm an evil person. Yes, I know so... that you're, you are both evil, have committed evil acts, <laughs> and are interested in others like yourself. No, you seem to me like a person who has an interest in um, like sympathetic criminals. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think I tend to be a fairly sympathetic person, and so it's nice to try to find the edge of that. And yeah. so sometimes it's these people in who've done terrible harm and then it's like oh wait but you are a person and I'm a person and so um it's just I like it when it's complicated yeah and so that's I mean I would say probably my favorite thing you've written was the piece you wrote um it was a, a a period piece I don't remember how far back into the past it went um that was about this older guy who had befriended this group of teenagers oh, yeah. and repeatedly plied them with drugs and alcohol and tried to convince them to kill him and bury him in the desert, at which point one of them eventually did kill him and bury him in the desert. Yeah, It's one of those weird true crime stories, um, and I do consider it a true crime story because it is like it is a fascinating procedural of how all of this stuff came about, but where everyone's kind of a victim. Yeah. And... I didn't even have a question there. I just wanted to like live in that story for a little bit. But that seems like another another case of a kind of a story um, with an unusual crime relationship where um, both the guy who gets killed and the guy who's killed him are both sort of like 
involved in a tragedy of sorts. Yeah, I'm glad that you read it that way. I actually just recently, a couple of weeks ago, got an email from a friend of the guy who was killed who was really offended by the sympathetic portrayal of Mike Baker, the the killer. And I don't know, it, that did... It had an impact on me. I mean, I... Yeah. Is that something... Have you gotten letters like that before? Not... No, not like this one. That would be pretty strange if you got a letter exactly <laughs> like that before. But, I mean, you do you do cover crime, so... Yeah. I mean, I a thing that made me really feel good... I was... That Asheville story, I was really nervous about when it came out because there were just a lot of people who felt that that situation had been portrayed poorly in some of those blog posts and the, the sort of brief news articles. Um, and people had been really open with me. And um, I just wanted to I just wanted everybody to think it was fair. And right after it came out, I got an email from Jared saying, I can't remember what he said exactly, but he basically was like, I think that you represented me fairly. Thank you. I don't know if he said thank you or not, but I think he did. He's a polite young man. And then I got right after that, I got an email from one of the women and she was like, I think that, you know, you did a good job telling our story. Thank you. I was like, wow, if I can, if both of these people feel like I did an, a fair job, maybe they're not, maybe they're not totally thrilled, but that it yeah. was like, okay, then I can relax a little bit. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly for a word from our sponsor, Club W. If you've been to the wine store, you know you can usually find kind of a snobby guy and it's a bit intimidating and you end up spending too much money. Uh, That's not the case with Club W. They deliver wine straight to your door, but it's not just any wine. It's personally recommended for you. How does that work? You take this palate quiz. They send you stuff they think you would like. You rate it. It gets better and better the more you buy from them. I really enjoy it, so I want you to go to clubw.com slash longform. They'll get 20 bucks off your first order. And I know people hate paying shipping on this kind of stuff, and it seems like, oh, it weighs kind of a lot. If you buy four bottles or more, the shipping is on the house. 20 bucks off. Support this show. Clubw.com slash longform. Get something off your to-do list today. Drink some good wine. Thank you, Club W. Our second sponsor today is Igloo. For many companies, work is no longer a location. Teams that are scattered all over the world. Longform has a designer in Berlin, but he's actually Portuguese. Anyway, you don't need the details, but you do need Igloo. It's a modern intranet designed to keep everyone on the same page, no matter where they are. You can share files, have real conversations in real time, and do it all while still being able to use the apps you currently use, like Box, Google Drive, Skype. Igloo brings everything together and creates a single destination that lets you focus on your work. Put simply, Igloo is an intranet you and your team will actually like. So try it today at igloosoftware.com slash longform. Thank you, Igloo, for supporting the show. Here I am back with Rachel Monroe. So what what brought you to writing in the first place? I you know I was always just like a writey kid. Um, <laughs> made like a family newspaper and yeah. stuff like that. I was always reading. Um, I mean, and I I thought for a long time that I was going to write fiction. I actually went to school for writing fiction. Um, you and everyone else has been on the show. Yeah, and then how uh, how long did it take you to give up that dream? <laughs> well, I was doing this. I I remember this point when I was writing short stories that I didn't feel that good about and sending them off to little literary magazines. And they have like a scam going where you you enter like a contest and you pay $20 to enter the contest. And if you win, I don't know, you get $1,000 and you get published in this little literary magazine. But for your $20 entry fee, you also get a free subscription to this magazine. And I was like, I don't even want the subscription to the magazine that is rejecting my short story, like w- there was clearly something very wrong with this yeah. system. Like I don't even want to be a part of this club that doesn't want me. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, if you took away the twenty dollars entry fee in the contest, the whole enterprise would collapse. Yeah, like, exactly. It's a Columbia House CD <laughs> kind of uh, thing. Yeah. Um, 
So after realizing that you did not want to be published by this magazine, <laughs> um, did you had you tried writing nonfiction before? Not really. I mean, and I started writing essays. I think it took me a long time to feel comfortable with the idea that I had ideas that were worth sharing mm -hmm. with the world. I think that might be something of a, a gender thing. Um, fiction felt safer. Yeah. I still like hear very loudly in my mind the, you know, who do you think you are voice. And so I started writing essays and then the first reporting that I did was the story about the fertilizer plant explosion in West. And then I was like, wow, I really like reporting. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what was it about that experience that you liked? I just really like, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing about me, but I kind of really enjoy vicarious intensity. <laughs> like I like being a spectator yeah. or a witness or a, some, it's a form of participation in somebody else's like super intense moment. Yeah. I like sharing that. I find it really thrilling. And I also like figuring out how, how something like I like a mystery, you know, un unpacking how, who said what, what happened, like getting a sense of what, what really went on, getting all all these various facets. Um, I was intrigued by the idea of nonfiction bringing up the "who do you think you are" thing uh -huh. and fiction not. And I mean, certainly the "who do you think you are" question is in many people's mind, probably who who are trying to break in as a writer, but. In thinking about why people feel that way, I would assume that part of the reason is that reporting, you actually have to go up to people and say, I'm a writer, whereas you can like write fiction in your house yeah. for your whole life and never have to say, this is who I am. So when you were having these first few experiences like in the world as a reporter, how did you get over that? Who do you think you are feeling? Well, I think, and I still always say that I'm a writer, not a reporter, because I feel like to be a reporter, you have to, I don't know, like you know something about, hat. yeah, <laughs> well, you just know, you have to know something about journalism. And I think there are all these rules and ethics and I yep. don't, I don't know anything. Yeah. I have some people that I can ask when I feel like I'm in dicey territory, <laughs> but um, yeah, well, for that first story, again, it was like, I, to address I, your ethical <laughs> concern, I'm a writer, not a reporter. So, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, but I think also people respond better to when you say writer in oh, a lot okay. of cases. That's good. That's people a good tip. Like reporters sometimes. Um, but for that, the story in West again, it was like I had heard that this guy who had been so the fertilizer plant exploded in this small town. All these firefighters and EMS people were killed, and then there was this guy who uh, was a firefighter and a paramedic who had gone in front of the TV a lot, and at first everybody was like, he's a hero, and he was the only one giving interviews, and then he ends up getting arrested for having explosives materials. Um, and this is a story that I heard about because it was being talked about at the Marfa Volunteer Firefighter meeting. Oh, man. Which is amazing. This is probably, the, like, the biggest story in volunteer firefighting of the decade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And everybody at the department meeting was like, I have fertilizer in my garage. I, You know, how do they arrest this guy? You know, they could arrest any of us. Any self-respecting firefighter has explosive what? materials well, in their I garage. I need to rewind here. Are you a volunteer firefighter? Oh, yes, I am. Okay. I was like, because um, <laughs> it would be like even more bizarre if you just went and hung around the meetings. Yeah, because the meetings are really dull. So, yeah. uh, How long have you been volunteer firefighting? I started right after I, I moved to Marfa. So. Um, what percentage of the overall population of Marfa is a volunteer firefighter Let's in see, Marfa? There are 2,000 people in Marfa and maybe like 15, 20 firefighters. So I don't know. Oh, okay. Wow. So like 1% of the yeah. people are. I mean, that's probably you have one of the stronger firefighting forces around. Well, you know. Fort Davis, Texas, might yeah. argue with you about that, but uh, so have you put out any fires yourself? Not by myself, but I mean, but like the, as the, part the, of the, the crew. Yeah, 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 we put out fires. Oh, well, I don't know. Like, how often does something catch in fire in a town of two thousand? Well, there are not very many structure fires, which is what uh, most people think. But there are a lot fire. of like, yeah, brush fires, wildfires. Okay. So, so you haven't like you haven't put like I have, run into a burning building. Yet, I but. well, I I think technically now I can. I've had the training with the um, the breathing stuff. But um, there have been a few structure fires since I've been there. Trailer, trailers, usually. So you don't yeah. have to run in because they're just pretty burned up. 
So you you got the tip oh, but from so the volunteer firefighter pipeline. Yeah, and, and then I, I don't know Texas well, but this this is far. This is not the same part of Texas. No, it's about eight. Everything's kind of like eight hours from Marfa. Um, and then I sent a Facebook message to the guy who had yep. been arrested. And then he months later he called me up, and I had like another off the record yeah. two hour conversation where he was crying. Um, and when someone starts crying, what do you like? Do you just kind of wait for them? I guess I just like make sympathetic noises. I feel like I'm asking you how to be a human being. <laughs> when someone starts crying, should I stroke their hair? <laughs> I just, you know, try to be kind. Yeah. Um, and and his life had been kind of destroyed. Totally. By this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he called me after he had been he was out of jail. He had been in jail, and so it almost I sort of didn't even really go into it with the intention of reporting. But then once he called me, I was like, oh, I guess I have to write about this and I guess I'll, I'll go there and, and talk to him. So I had that in with him and so that I knew that that was going to be like the backbone of the story um, and so that made it easier. And then, I mean, it is always hard to just go into somewhere and start asking people questions about a really terrible thing that happened, but I just had this experience um I always have so much dread in the days leading up to when I have to go do something like that. Like, tell me about your murdered daughter, um, which is the one I had to do last week. But then when people expect it, people and people are always much more willing to talk than I think that they will be. I think people like to have their story out in the world. They like the validation. There's something about, you know, the world wants to hear about this like you had a private tragedy something really big and awful happened to you and I'm telling you that it's important and that I think people need to hear about it and yeah yeah I think sometimes the the scale of tragedy is very hard to to gauge mm-hmm. in the world and good writing I think kind of creates a a universal language of it that can make a small tragedy seem of the scale that it feels like from the inside yeah. or even sometimes a large tragedy seem like hum- human scaled. Um, I'm going to steal that. I like that. <laughs> that's what I'm, I'm stealing do. that. That's a, <laughs> it's a summary of I feel like this uh, the summary of your work. I mean, it's about tragedies of different sizes. They're mostly of like a small town size, but they're as big as the towns they take place in generally. Yeah. Which sometimes makes them hard to like sell to magazines yeah, and I was, stuff. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you've got like Oxford American um, you've got like a few of these magazines that are like, yeah, we're like regional. Like we yeah. do like the little town stories, and there's still a few, um, you know, North Carolina magazine kind of magazines mm-hmm. out there, or um, you know, a few states still have their own magazine, but many states don't even have their own magazine anymore. So, what what's the audience for these stories of American town tragedies? I don't know. I mean, I I write them, and then. People do seem to read them, so I guess there is some audience. But yeah. it's always I do always have a tricky time. I can be like, this story is amazing. I mean that the story about the the murder in Big Bend, which is just like such a crazy story. I had such a hard time finding yeah. anybody who wanted it because people would be like, wow, that sounds like a crazy story. Like what? Yeah. What does it? This seems what like is a it about? Big Bend magazine yeah. kind of story. And I just and I was like, I, I don't know. It's about human nature. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't really tell us anything about anything bigger than um what it was but yeah i mean crime is a strange quality like yeah. that where it's the most compelling thing i mean i think we agree that if uh if we listed 10 possible articles to write read right now we could expect humanity to gravitate towards uh-huh. the one with the murder in right. it but there aren't any murder magazines out there there's huh. the the magazines are not really quite suited towards those human interests if they were we'd have like as many true crime magazines as we have beauty magazines or something, or that's a bad example. People are really interested in beauty Uh, as we have literary magazines, which actually there isn't a huge market for personal essays as far as I know. Um, Who, who actually did publish that big Ben story? Is that matter? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Matter. The, the medium publication. I mean, actually I'm curious, like when someone says like, Hey, we like this idea, but it's kind of like not really up our alley. Do you have like a, a rap about why they should go for it. I probably should. I'm always just like, thank you. <laughs> I'll bring you another, a better one soon. <laughs> um, so, like, how do you have a quota of how many stories you want to do every year to 
um, to survive in Marfa? <laughs> no, and I also have like a secret other job so I can always pay rent. Um, How secret is this job? It's not secret at all. I do like financial copywriting for various banks and industry publications. And that's something you've had kind of throughout your freelance career as a backbone? Yeah, I mean, I graduated from... I finished grad school kind of in the middle of the recession and never had the idea. And because I was starting out writing fiction, I just never, never seemed to me that I would ever make any money doing writing. And so I was always knew that I would have to have a job so I could pay the rent and then still be free to travel and follow my interests. So how has that worked out? It's great. The people I work for are very flexible. So I do maybe like 15 or 20 hours a week, depending. And... It's sort of nice in a way. I mean, I it would be great to not have to do that kind of work, but it's made me a lot better about I used to hate calling people up on the phone, just dread it, and um, I just have to call people on the phone all the time for this job. It's made me get over myself in a lot of ways. Yeah. Made me also, like, write a lot faster. Yeah. A lot of the sort of, like, preciousness that I built up in grad school, um, having a job where I just need to write quickly and clearly for money, Got got rid of a lot of some bad habits, maybe that I had developed. I mean, yeah. Does like, um, uh, has your prose been influenced by financial copyright? I hope not. When you read, do you feel critical of your copywriting work in the same way, or like an urge to improve it or anything? No, because I think the only way that I cannot feel like morally compromised by writing for some of these industries, I think I am morally compromised, maybe, but is to do. I don't want to do a good job. I mean, oh. I don't want to do a great job. I want to do exactly the level of okay. I'm undermining the big banks <laughs> yeah, exactly. with bad writing. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's a good uh, it's a good thing for a perfectionist to yeah. to practice. I don't want it to be too good. Okay. <laughs> so you're 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 sandbagging the entire fa- exactly. financial industry. Exactly. Exactly. It's like a long term plan. You you cited sort of the anxiety of like being able to live anywhere mm-hmm. and that being actually some ways harder than being stuck somewhere and so now you're now you have a place you're in uh you're in Marfa but your time is still pretty wide open it sounds like with yeah. this um is it hard to structure i mean even with a 15 20 hour anchor in there how many stories you're doing at a given time whether you're traveling for these stories i'm curious how you organize your life I would love a system if somebody wanted to give me a system. I just do it badly, I think, because I get uh, panicked when I don't have enough work. Then I get panicked and then, like, hustle for a bunch of work and then I have too much work Mm. and then it's just all. Is it – I mean, is it – do you – you've published with some people I know who are on the higher end, you know, who who pay decently for Mm -hmm. for work. And you've also published, like, in smaller outlets – I assume that just to get from Marfa to the airport and fly anywhere, you're incurring an expense for every story. Do you even do you make money on every story you do, or is that even a, a yeah. concern? Yeah, it is because I want to feel like a professional. Yeah, a professional lady. Yeah, I I think that I um at this point I usually don't do stories unless the expenses are paid, and sometimes it'll be. You know, sometimes I'll get kind of uh, obsessed. Like in that Big Ben story, I probably took a bunch of trips to Big Ben, which is right near where I live, and didn't, you know, count my mileage for all of them or anything. And some of that was just to satisfy my own curiosity. And then I would go camping. Um, So I'm not, you know, my accounting is maybe not super precise, but it's important for me to be professional. I don't even know where you're from, actually. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Oh, okay. And do you see this as a a whole life thing? I mean, are you planning kind of a lifelong writing career doing this kind of freelance work? Would you want a staff job? I'm I'm curious, like, because you seem you seem very free actually in many ways. But it, yeah. I, you're making me anxious, sort of, with your <laughs> with your freedom. Um. Yeah, I don't know if I'm suited to work in an office. I really like being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. <laughs> and uh, that's the other nice thing about having the the anchor job is that it means that I can, I can really kind of focus on things that I'm very interested in and I don't, I don't have to think about things that I'm not interested in and I can spend time on them um, without feeling like I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. So yeah, and I like living in 
I don't think I could ever live in New York. Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, when you look at people who are leading kind of the more traditional um, Craigslist apartment in Brooklyn, scrounging by freelancing kind of life, what does that look like from the opposite end of the telescope? Um, I am happy if those people are happy. It also makes me really like my life. It makes me so grateful <laughs> yeah. that I, I tend to be a pretty competitive person and so and easily influenced by my environment. So I think that there's a, an element of can be really useful to isolate yourself from that and um, just be as independent from it. And then it's so easy with the Internet and with the Twitter and all that to not be totally isolated at all. Um, and I think that's why this podcast <laughs> has actually been really helpful. Oh, not that? to well, be oh, that's, no, but really you. because it, you guys started about when I started doing this kind of writing, and yeah. I was like, "What are you allowed to do? Does everybody have a really hard time with this? Like, yeah, how do people do this? Um, what and, was what I like other than this excellent podcast? <laughs> what I mean, what else was useful? You talked about calling yourself a. Um, writer, not a reporter, so people didn't think you understood the ethics of <laughs> being a reporter. And I think that's like that's a real issue. There's not a um, handbook to how to do it. So what what else in picking this stuff up pretty rapidly was useful to you? Hmm. I don't know if there's I don't know if I have an answer to that. I mean, also, I'm curious when you're on those first like few gigs and someone's like, uh, do you know what you're doing? Like, did you, do you reach points where you Kind of like, I don't know what the thing you're supposed to do in this job is. Oh, yeah, for sure. But then it's like you just kind of play a character whose name is Reporter. Yeah. Reporter, you Rachel. you got the hat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just, in a way, I think that it sometimes works to my benefit because I think that I, often the stories that I do will be kind of the aftermath. So there will be a big event like the, the fertilizer plant explosion or something like that where the press has sort of descended, done their version of the story, and then gone away. And then I come a few months later, and I think that it works to my benefit that I don't seem the way that they seem. I think I ask very different questions. I work at a very different pace. You know, mm -hmm. like, I'll sure, I'll spend all day with you rambling old man yeah. who doesn't want to be on the record. Like, that's fine. Let's, let's hang out. Um, yeah. And so I think that contrast can actually be a benefit in a way. Um, I'm also curious, um, in the piece that you did about sort of, uh, I think they call it uh, uh, Munchausen by Internet, uh -huh. which is sort of a variant on catfishing, but yeah. it's catfishing for extreme sympathy. Um, catfishing usually with false medical claims and multiple dying children who have cancer and are dying on twins. people's birthday and yeah. new twins are being born um, and that whole universe. I think most people have probably seen a story like that on the internet about someone who catfished a bunch of people and created fake people. So it's not like a totally new idea, but I would say your story is not so much the story of a specific Munchausen by Internet, but it's the story of Munchausen by Internet. So when you're doing something like that that builds on, like, a lot of previous reporting, how do you think about carving out new territory? Hmm. In that case, it, there was a specific woman who was involved with this online detective community that I was interested in, and, and her version of it hadn't been told as much as these individual stories but, um, I mean, I think the, the the thing that I have to offer is that I will, like, totally go emotionally deep with people. And if I can, like, find a subject who, like, is into that, yeah. then it will probably be a good story. And whether yeah. that person is, like, a victim of a crime or a committer of a crime or, like, a woman who spends a lot of time on the Internet looking for hoaxes or whatever it may be, then... Um, I guess I just think that people are interesting, particularly when those people have gone through some sort of extreme yeah. uh, situation. I've never gone emotionally deep with a stranger as a writer. Well, I mean, I guess I have. On the, this show is the closest, yeah. but uh, usually I know something about them before, and it's not a, a true, true deepness. So I guess I'm curious about what what's that like? Like, what's it like having a really emotional, like, 
deeply emotional discussion with someone that's not just about getting facts out of them, but it's about processing what is happening to them emotionally. Yeah, it can be weird sometimes. Sometimes it it feels like a weird high, but it can also then afterwards feel kind of icky, like mm. I, or manipulative. I mean, I don't know. It's just sometimes I feel like I'm talking to people who need a therapist, and I am the most like I am the person who is kind of from outside the situation, You're free. like <laughs> listening. Yeah, I'm free, and I'm and I'm listening to them and empathizing with them and like yeah. reflecting back and all of whatever, and not not as like a consciously uh, manipulative thing, but I don't have, I'm not a therapist and I don't have their best interests at heart. And I'm trying to like get something from them that I'm going to use. And and what that is, is trying to get their version of their story, which I want to portray as accurately as possible. It's not, I'm not trying to take their soul or anything, but it can feel like weird. But, and so, and then I do feel a sense of responsibility sometimes. Like the, the guy who, um, in the Big Ben murder story, like I have to keep writing. We write all the time. We're like friends this now. This has been like a couple of years. Yeah. You just um, emailed me this what, morning. What do you write about? This morning's email. I mean, and it's not like we email every day, but um, you know, he wrote. There's some stuff about Donald Trump. There's some stuff about pro or con. Um, I think he knows. O- open to his advances. He knows. He sa- he says he thinks it would be, it would be interesting and that he would probably do a good job of delegating. And I don't know. So when a therapist ends up in that situation, I feel like they have like a lot of training about what to do. I mean, I think there's elements of transference. I guess is the term, mm-hmm. kind of like falling in love with your therapist, or you know. There, when someone listens to you after many people have not listened to you, yeah. you can put a lot of emotion. How do you how do you guide that energy as as a writer? Do you just I mean, as an interviewer, you're supposed to just let people talk, which I'm terrible at. Uh-huh. Um, but it sounds to me, in certain cases, I mean, you're talking about murder cases where someone could say something very detrimental to themselves in that that kind of a way. So I'm just curious what your role is when someone's sort of crying and uh, exposing their soul to you. <laughs> um, I mean, and it's not always like that at all. It's just usually like just... that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't ever go in. Sometimes people will be like, will you send me a list of questions in advance? I'm like, that's not really how I do this. Yeah, yeah. That's not, I've never How really organized do you that. think I am? <laughs> yeah. so we're just going to talk. Yeah. Um, that makes people uncomfortable. They're kind of open ended. I don't know what's coming. Kind of I stuff. think it also depends on how what and the, and the ways in which they've dealt with media before. Yeah. Or and I've I've that's something that I've learned to adjust. Like some people will feel more comfortable in a more formal. They don't necessarily like want to bear their hearts right yeah. away, and yeah. so they have to feel it out and adjust yeah. accordingly. But. Yeah, I don't know. It's just some sort of like intuitive sense for like where the the energy is, where the like psychic energy is. I feel like I sound very new agey. No, but, no. I mean, um, that's real. No. The, the The energy is real. I mean, yeah. I, I I I believe that because I don't see how you can sort of not believe that mm-hmm. on on some level. But as your career progresses, n- now when you have someone like um, in that first ninety mi- off the records minute, you're like, oh, got a crier here. Like, yeah. are, do you start to see patterns in people's emotional arcs when you're talking to them? Well, and there's a thing, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I think you should. There's an interesting, there's a type of person who is a great interview subject for me traditionally, who is is always, I think, a man who, um, it's like somebody who has like done something wrong, but and knows that they probably shouldn't talk about it anymore, yeah. but like really wants to explain themselves. Yes. And it's a guy who's like weirdly peacemaking, but also still has like a total axe to grind right. kind of attitude. Yeah. And it's, and I guess that's the pattern is that sort of hearing that if I'm like, oh, okay, you're like that. And initially you're going to be like, I'm not, I don't want to talk to you. I can't talk to you. And if I just sort of patiently keep listening, like you really do. The reason you're talking to me for a few hours is because you have something that you want people to hear. Yeah. Um, And I just, if I just am like patient and wait it out. And and another, you were asking earlier about like strategies, something that I think now that I've written some of these pieces can be helpful is like sending 
like telling people like this is the kind of thing that I write and then sending them some, oh, of, some of those stories and then they'll, they're like oh okay you're like you know you do something that's like long and complex and you know with fancy, <laughs> fancy words and so it just well they were all too long so I didn't read them but they seemed all right <laughs> I mean is that strange is strange when you want to interview someone about their um pickup artist podcast and you send them something about a someone who murdered their friend and buried him in the desert. I don't think I usually send that Okay. Because I feel like there's a moral equivalency <laughs> yeah, thing exactly. where you, you kind of want to play up to yeah. people and it's yeah. like, oh, I'm only as bad as that guy with the pickup artist like yeah. podcast? Yeah. I could totally live with that. <laughs> Do you, Will you ever um, write about a person who has not done something horrible or uh, allegedly done something horrible? Yes. I wrote a I, you know, sometimes I write about, uh, I wrote I like, about Roy Orbison once. I like watching your mind spin <laughs> trying to think of one example that's not, that, that doesn't fit somewhere in I that just, spectrum. Yeah, I just want it to be complicated. I guess, um, and they all, I don't think horrible no, is the word for most of them with, at all. They're all people with, um, extreme, with like stakes and, and loss, yeah. generally. You don't, yeah. uh, no one, no one leaves your stories in a good place. But oh, there is a little cathar- <laughs> there's usually some catharsis, but I'm still kind of worried for them. Yeah. Oh, me too. And that's the weird part about like that's the part that can feel uh, complicated about um talking to people and having them cry with you and then and then yeah. sort of being like bye. I mean, yeah. There's that whole J- Janet Malcolm wrote a whole book about it. People yeah. that when you are done with a story, the feeling of being like done with a person, yeah, kind of, and um, it felt good to read that because I I have that feeling of it's so strange to just be like so invested in a person and in their story and really kind of fascinated with it and obsessed with it, and then when the story is over, kind of not, kind of it's like the breakup. It's like sorry, we're done. Um, that seems as sad a place to end as any. <laughs> Thank Great. you very much, Rachel, for oh, coming in uh, during your uh, during your trip. Um, all these stories will be uh, in the show notes. And that was the long form podcast. Uh, thanks very much to my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our sponsors Igloo, Club W, Mailchimp. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash VIYA.